Well, thanks for being here with us this morning. It's great to see you, whether you're here in person or you're watching online. If we've never met, my name is Corey, and I have the honor and privilege of being lead pastor here at GFC. And you're joining us in the midst of our very first series of the year called Hope Has a Name. And this is our focus for the whole year. And we are using the book of Luke as our home base uh, as we go through this series and as we go through the year. And so, like I've said, we're not going through Luke uh, literally verse by verse every single week, but we will use it as home base. We'll come back to it and we will use different topics and things that show up in the book of Luke to help us start and stop different series and different conversations along the way. Before we dive into our text that we're going to be in Luke today, I have two things. One is a reminder, and then one is something I actually want to take some time and pray for uh, at the beginning of our service today. So the first thing I want to remind you of is praying for at 415. So I introduced this to you last week. We posted it on social this week. Um, And it's just a reminder, this is something that we're going to do until Easter, okay? So this is kind of the focus for the next four months or so, three or four months or so. And so we're asking you to set an alarm or set a reminder, something at 4.15. Like I said, it's up to you whether you do it in the morning or in the evening or in the afternoon, I guess. I will be in the afternoon. Uh, But these are the four things we're asking you to pray for, right? For one person to decide to follow Jesus. So picking someone by name you know doesn't know Jesus and asking for God to move in their life and maybe even use you to move in their life. Number two, for GFC, our, our church, Grace Family Church, to be unified as one. To not let division, to not let frustration, to not let those things get in the way of our relationships, but that we would be unified in our mission and our vision. Number three, for God to show you, uh, grow you, sorry, one step closer to him. So this is where you have to do some homework, decide how you want God is, or just, you know, talk to God and see how he wants you uh, to grow this year and ask him to do that in you, whether it's being more loving or kind or patient, whatever that might be. And then the last thing is for hope to be the number one thing uh, people see in us because of Jesus. And so this is something, again, set a, set a reminder, do something. It, it's cool. It'll take you one minute, two minutes, maybe three, right? But us doing this all together would be a great reminder every day of what our focus is and what our mission is as a church. And so I would really encourage you uh, to do that. So just want to remind you of that. Here's the second thing I want to tell you about and I want to pray for uh, in just a minute. Uh, One of my good friends, his name is Dane. Uh, Dane is a pastor starting a brand new church down in the Baltimore area. And today is their very first service. They're launching their church today. Uh, It's one of our Karis Fellowship churches. So there's a brand new Karis Fellowship church that's starting today uh, in the Baltimore area. And so as someone who was part of a church plant before, that day is super exciting and also terrifying. Just so you know, if you've never gone through it, because your eggs are all in the basket, you're going, you're doing it and figuring it out. And they're meeting in a movie theater, which means they've got to do a lot of setup and tear down and all that kind of unique stuff. And parking is all kinds of crazy. And so um, I just wanted to stop and I just wanted to pray for them. And as you go through prayers this week or, you know, in the coming weeks, if they just come to your mind, like I said, his name is Dane, uh, his wife's name is Anna, and their church name is Church at the Well. And so if you think about them, uh, just pray for them and what they're going through and they're starting their ministry in the Baltimore area. All right, so let's just take a minute and uh, pray for them together. Lord, we thank you uh, for Dane and for Anna and for the vision you've given them and the gifts that you've given them and the opportunity to be your hands and feet, to be your church uh, in the Baltimore area. And I pray for them today, right now, as they're having service and getting to do this for the very first time. I know that that's uh, awesome, but also just scary. And so I pray that you would speak through Dane. I pray that you would use them in their community um, and that they would see people come to know you from the work that they're doing. 
uh, that you would bless them, that you would grow them, that you would guide them uh, in their ministry, and that they would last for years and years and years to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for letting me take up some of our our time with that. Here's where we're going to be today. We're going to talk about a very specific character in Scripture that you've probably heard about, but we're going to dig into him a little bit more. And Luke gives us a lot of detail um, about this guy. And that guy's name is John the Baptist. Or if you had my high school Bible teacher, she called him John the Baptizer. Because if you say John the Baptist, it sounds like he's part of the Baptist denomination. Well, that didn't exist yet, right? And so John was known for what he did. He was the person that brought baptism to the table. And he was a very important person. Just to give you a little bit of background, right, if you don't know, John and Jesus had a very intertwined relationship. In fact, their, parent, their moms were cousins. And, so the, and also, the fact that their moms were pregnant with them was a miracle. And so if you go back, we're not going to look at it today, but if you go back and look at the beginning of John's life, his mom was not able to have kids. And so he, you know, she and her husband had tried to have kids and they couldn't. And so one day, John's dad, is he was a priest, he was doing his priestly duties, and an angel shows up and says, you're going to have a kid. And he doesn't believe the angel. Now, pro tip, right? If an angel ever tells you something and shows up, just believe what they say, because they're probably right. So he actually becomes mute for, uh, for the whole nine months of his wife's pregnancy until the baby is born. And when John is born and he confirms that that's the baby's name, that it would be John and not Zechariah, because that was a little weird, usually you named him after someone from your family then he could speak again. But there's a moment where Mary, right, Jesus' mom and Elizabeth, John's mom, they get together and both babies are, are in utero, right? And John actually leaps for joy because Jesus is close by. And there was this intertwining of their life that was so important. And we're going to see why today, because John played a very, very specific role in Jesus' ministry. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 1. And so you can obviously follow along. If you brought your Bible with you, you can open your phone or your tablet, whatever. If you want to follow along, you can use the QR code on the back of the Next Steps card. That will take you to our follow along, all the, all the notes and all the verses and all the fun stuff there. In Luke 3, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Ituria and Trachonitis. Uh, Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Verses 2 and 3. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. At this time, a message from God came to John, the son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. And when John went from place to place, on, then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. And so we get, again, we, down the road, right, we get introduced to this John the Baptist guy. He's a little strange, okay? You notice where he was living? In the wilderness, right? Not necessarily the normal place you'd want to be. Kind of a little bit dangerous, and we learn from other places in Scripture that he ate locusts and honey, okay? He was kind of the oddball. He didn't necessarily fit in with society. And so when he gets this message from God to go and do this, he has to come back kind of to the area, right, that where the Jordan River was, was a little bit more populated because water was good and they had to be close by. So he comes back in and he starts to baptize people. But I want us to notice something about what Luke just wrote. You'd always notice uh, I struggle reading when there's names. I, I am terrible with biblical names, okay, except for the disciples. They're fine. But like anybody else, just gets hard. I have to think about it when I read it. Luke just gave us a bunch of names, right? 
and a bunch of people that were around at the time. Well, why would Luke do that? This is why. Because Luke wants his readers to know exactly where and when this took place. When Pastor Andrew spoke to us a couple weeks ago, he talked about how good of a historian Luke actually was. And when Luke gives us this detail, he gives us these people who were ruling at a certain time. And so that gives us a certain section of history, right? We do the same things with presidents. We talk about what happened during their term as president, right? And we can kind of measure history that way. The same thing was true there. And the important thing is, right, when you have these leaders, they're over certain areas, So what does this do for us and even his readers early on? It lets them know exactly when and where this happened. We can take this and pinpoint the time and place, and there would be people around at the time he wrote it to tell us whether that was true or not, or to tell the other readers or the people, you know, getting getting this letter later, like, was that actually true? Is this who was in place at this time? And so it puts it like a puzzle piece right into history. And lets us know exactly when and where this took place so Luke can make sure that we understand what he's talking about. Going on in verse 4, it says, Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, uh, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, right? So we get this wilderness tie. And he says, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him, verses 5 and 6. The valleys will be filled, the mountains and hills be made level, the curves will be straightened, and the rough places made smooth. Then all people will see salvation sent from God. And now Luke does something that's also very important. He's already given us historical place and time. And now he does this. Luke ties the exact date and location to an ancient prophecy. This is so important because he's taking these two things, exact time and place, current time for him, or at least a little bit before him, but people would understand when it was happening. And then he goes, remember this prophecy, we're going to put this together. Why? Because we're going to understand that this moment in history is massively important. Luke was not, he was completely realizing that this was a moment that things were about to start, right? We talked last week about Jesus as an adolescent, about 12, 13 years old. We don't get anything else about him until we get to John. And he picks it up right at about age 30 for Jesus. And John was the person that was coming along to prepare the way for Jesus. This is the moment things would change And this path would be set for Jesus to come and be our Redeemer. And there's two phrases that are super important in verses 4 and verses 6. In verse 4, it says this, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. And then it says, Clear the road for him. Okay? Then when we jump to verse 6, it says, And then all people will see the salvation sent from God. This is very interesting. But this was John's job. But think about that first phrase that's in yellow. Why would it say, clear the road? What That implies, right, there's a roadblock. There's something stopping people from moving forward. And John's job was to get it out of the way. So what maybe could that be? Well, it was helping the Jews to understand that the way that they had done things for thousands of years was going to be completely different. Now, let me ask you a question. How easily do people change from doing things the same way for thousands of years? How easily do you change from doing things for like five years the same way, right? Or me. Getting people to change their ways and shift how they're thinking about things is difficult. And this was John's job. He had to help the Jews and the people at the time 
understand that the way that they had gotten to that place was not the way they were going to move forward, that they were going to have to change the way that they were thinking and kind of get out of their own way in order for the second thing to be true, that all people will see the salvation sent from God. That this is not simply for the Jews, that this is for all people. And if we don't clear the way of what's going on or what the belief system was so far, we're not going to be able to include everyone. And so John kind of had to, he had to open the road, open the way for Jesus to come and for him to be our redeemer. Going on in verse seven, this is what it says. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, you brood of snakes, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Verse eight, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we are safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Verse 9. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. John doesn't mince words, does he? Like, he lets them know, this is what's happening. And most of his audience at this point kind of would have been Jews. And so when the people are coming and having this conversation, he says you have to be baptized and you have to repent. He says you have to prove that you've repented by the way that you live. He says, just because you are a son or daughter of Abraham does not mean that you automatically receive God's favor. This was different than what they had been told, again, for thousands of years. Even if you think back to some Old Testament passages, you think back to where we studied Judges last year, right? At times, God kind of comes in, is in favor of the Israelites, and steamrolls another group of people, doesn't he? Even when the Israelites are not living the way that they're supposed to, God steps in and says, I'm going to help you. And John says, listen, that's not where you find the favor of God anymore. This is going to change for you. And so he says, now the axe is poised. If, some, if you don't bear fruit, this is going to change for you. And so here's what baptism did. Baptism changed the way Jews understood repentance and salvation. You see, for Jews, what they always had to do was they always had to make sacrifices. They literally had to pay for their sins with the life of another animal. So regularly, they would have the blood of an animal on their hands for the sins they had committed. And now what was going to change for the better was Jesus was going to come and he was going to be that offering. And the Jews understood what baptism was, but they weren't the ones who had to do it. See, baptism was a practice for someone who was a Gentile, not a Jew, who wanted to become a Jew. And so if someone was a Gentile and they decided they wanted to enter the Jewish faith, if you were male, you had to be circumcised, and then everybody would have to be baptized. And so saying this to Jews was kind of like, you have to do the practice that people that are not Jews have to do. And they were not really on board with that, right? They were kind of like, no, I'm already in. I'm already part of the club. I'm already a son or daughter of Abraham. Why do I have to do this? And John is saying to them, you have to change 
the way that you understand this. You have to understand repentance and salvation differently. Now, salvation still came through faith for the Jews. But the way that they understood the relationship with God was going to change for the better because Jesus was on the way. And so Luke, in his account of what's going on with John the Baptist, he gets a little bit more specific about the people that are coming to him. And in Luke 3, verses 10 and 11, it, said, it says, The crowds asked, What should we do? And John replied, If you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Verses 12 and 13, Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and said, Teacher, what should we do? He replied, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. In verse 14, What should we do? asked some soldiers. And John replied, Don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. So we get these three groups of people, right? One is just a general crowd. What do we do? How do we do this thing that you're saying we're supposed to do now? And he just says, love your neighbor, essentially, right? If you've got extra, you share. If you've got extra stuff to give and somebody doesn't have it, you share. Whether it's food or clothing or whatever, you care for people the way that you would care for yourself. That's your job. Then we get these corrupt tax collectors, right? They show up. Now listen, this is why they were able to come. They came to John because now he was opening the road so all people could understand, right? All people could receive salvation. So these tax collectors come and he says, collect no more taxes than the government requires, right? If you don't understand what tax collectors did, they worked for the Roman government and they would come and knock on your door and say, this is how much taxes you owe. And they could say the amount that Rome told them that they had to collect, or they could just up it, and they could pocket the, the rest of it, right? So if you owed $20 and they showed up at your doorstep and said, you owe 40 you had to pay it, and they'd pocket 20 and they'd give the other 20 to Rome. And so they could get rich just by taking from people. And so John says, don't do that. Don't collect more taxes than the government requires. Just do your job. And then we get Roman soldiers showing up. They want to know what's going on with John. They say, what do we do? He said, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. See, those soldiers could come along and say, I saw you do this, even if somebody didn't. Or they could say, I saw you do that, even if you did. How much will you pay me to keep my mouth shut? Right? They had a lot of power there. And so John says, don't extort people. Don't take their money. Don't give false accusations and be content with your pay. He says, actually do the job you're supposed to do and hold this position of power with dignity and don't take from other people. So why is this important? Why does he give us these three groups of people? I think, I think it's important because of this. Because repentance is a personal choice to turn from a particular sin. You see, the danger, for lack of a better word, of the shifting of sacrifice for sin, the, the continual sacrifice for sin that the Jews experienced, to the singular sacrifice for sin that Jesus accomplished on the cross. The danger, for lack of a better word, right? Is that we don't have to over and over again remind ourselves to repent necessarily, do we? Right? The Jews were in that practice over and over again. They'd have that blood on their hands and they'd say, oh, I have to think about the things that I've done and I have to recognize that this animal is losing its life because of me. But because Jesus is that once and for all sacrifice, we don't have to do that, but we're still called to make that choice to repent. And we're still called to look back at our lives and say, what are the things I'm going to actually turn from and how am I going to turn towards God? And so 
when we get these examples of these people, we have to kind of look inwardly at ourselves and go, what are the things that we struggle with, right? If it was a group of pastors that showed up, right? What, would, what should we do, right? If it's a group of whatever your profession is or whatever you would fall, what category you would fall into, what, what is it for me? What do I need to do in order to repent and live the way that John is asking me to live and ultimately living the way that Jesus asked me to live? And so we have to make that personal choice to turn from our particular sins. It's not enough just to say, I repent of all the bad stuff I do, right? We get specific and we turn and we try and move towards God instead of away from him. Because repentance is literally that turning from something and moving in the other direction. Luke goes on in verse 15, says, everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon. And they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. Verse 16, John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I am not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Verses 17 and 18, he is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. I find these verses kind of funny because he talks about never-ending fire, and then Luke just goes, and this is how he told about the good news, right? It's just kind of like counterintuitive. In verses 19 and 20, it says, John also publicly criticized Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, for marrying Herodotus, his brother's wife, and for many other wrongs he had done. So Herod put John in prison adding this sin to his many others. Again, John does not mince words, right? He's going to tell you how it is. This was his job. So it ended up landing him in prison. But before he ended up in prison, this this took place in verses 21 and 22. It says, One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened. And the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. And so Jesus, when all these other people around, shows up to John and says, I need you to baptize me too. And if we were to look at this story other places in the Gospels, there's kind of an exchange that goes on between John and Jesus. And John says this strap of his sandals where he's like, Jesus, I, I, I can't baptize you. Like, that's not my job. And Jesus says, no, it, it's your job. It's what you're here to do. You're here to clear the road so that all people can know what I'm here to do. But that should lead you to a question, right? Because, because John has been having this conversation about repentance and baptism all along, right? And now Jesus shows up to be baptized. Sounds interesting, right? Why would Jesus have to show up? If Jesus was sinless and Jesus had no sin and the reason that we need to repent is because of sin, well, then the logical question is, right, why was Jesus baptized? Why would he show up and say, John, I need you to baptize me? Why didn't he show up and just baptize John and then take over all the baptizing? In fact, some of the disciples from Jesus and the disciples of John were not, they didn't get along quite well for a little bit because they were like, wait a minute, John's doing something and he's got ministry going and Jesus is supposed to be it. There's kind of this weird dynamic here. So why? Why would Jesus show up and be baptized? And here's, here's why. Jesus was baptized to be completely accountable for the debt he didn't owe. What that means is you think about everything that Jesus did. Did he need to die on the cross? Was that his burden to bear? No, not literally because he was not, he had no sin to pay for. 
And yet he said he would do that. And so he says from the beginning of his ministry, as he starts, he says, I'm going to be the example. I'm going to own this completely all the way to the cross as an example for all of those who would come after me. That's what leaders do, right? Leaders go first. Leaders show how it's done. And so that's what he does. He steps into the water and says, I'm going to do this the whole way just as I'm going to ask you to do it. All, all until, even up to the point of the cross. And so this brings me to another question. Why should we be baptized? Why is this something that we should do? And if you've been around churches for a long time, you know that there's different ways that people baptize. But baptism is something that kind of sets Christianity apart, right? There's other rituals and stuff in other religions where water is involved. But this type of baptism where you, the way we do it, right, you decide to follow Jesus and then you commit to go into a tank or go into our little baptistry over here, right? Or go into a pool or go into a stream or wherever you're going to go and you get dunked underwater. Why? Because there's a decision you've made. And so I want to I give three reasons today why I think that it's important for us as we understand what baptism is. The first thing is this, that baptism is an outward expression of an inward repentance. Right? Only you and I can repent of the sins that we've done. We have to own that. But we also know, and I hope that you do this too, like you can repent of something without anybody else knowing. Right? You can have a thought or something like that and just realize, oh, that was wrong. I, can't, I shouldn't have thought that or I shouldn't be planning that or I shouldn't be whatever. And you can, in you know, your own life, your quietness of your own house, car, wherever you are, right, you can think that through and go, I, you know, apologize, you know, pray to God, please forgive me, right, and then just move away from that and not do it. There's other times where you have to repent to someone, right? You say something you didn't mean or you do something and you have to go back to them and, and apologize for that. But repentance can happen where there's no one that knows. But this idea of baptism is so that people do know the choice that we've made, right? We've made that commitment to say, I'm going to repent on a regular basis, and I'm going to examine my life, and this is the decision I've made, that I don't just belong to my own desires anymore, but I want to pursue Jesus. And so it's an outward expression of an inward repentance. And repentance is so important, right? We keep coming back to this. It's so important because without repentance, there is no salvation, We have to repent. Like, we have to recognize that sin exists in our lives. We have to recognize that it's something we have to move away from and move towards God. And if there was no sin, there would be no need for salvation. But the repentance, the recognition that we do sin is, is what motivates us to follow Jesus and to turn towards him. And so we're, we're recognizing that peace we would say there's something that I need saving from. And my recognition of that is to say that I would follow Jesus in the act of baptism. The second reason I think we should be baptized is that when we're found in Jesus, God's favor rests on us as well. I want to go back to verses 21 and 22, because this is so important and it's so, it's such a great couple of verses. It says one day, right, when the crowds are being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. I have a really good friend and mentor. When he has a conversation like this, he talks about Jesus like a glove. 
And Jesus is like a glove because when God looks at us, if we are covered in the blood of Jesus, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He sees his sacrifice. He sees what Jesus did for us and the the fact that we've accepted him. He doesn't see our sin anymore. And so when God looks at us and he sees Jesus, how does God look at Jesus in this moment? You are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Like that's what God sees when he looks at us when we're found in Jesus. That's how he sees us and he sees us that way because he created us, right? He knit us together. He created our inmost being and he loves us deeply. And here's, here's what I know to be true, right? Hope exists in the approval of the Father. Hope exists in the approval of the Father. Maybe you experienced something like this when you were a kid. Maybe you had a bullying experience or someone said something that was mean or you had a, you know, you didn't make the team or you didn't make the grade or something like that, right? And you came home and you were all upset and frustrated and whatever. And your mom or your dad sat down next to you and they said, I don't care what they say or I don't care how good you were or weren't, right? I love you and I'm proud of you. And if you were like middle school or high school, you probably looked at them and went, yeah, you have to because you're my mom and dad, right? Like it didn't mean much back then because you're like, oh, you have to love me, right? We didn't, we take it for granted, right, when we're kids sometimes. But I bet the older you got, if you had that kind of experience with your mom or your dad or any other adult in your life, right, the fact that they would come along and they would say they love you and they're proud of you, it meant the world, right? And even as an adult, I feel that way with my dad. Like if he says he's proud of me, like that means more to me than someone else saying I'm the worst person on the planet, right? If my dad's proud of me, I'm, I'm good. The same thing can be true with, with God, right? We're, we're going to go through times where people don't like us, right? They're going to say things. They're going to do things. It's going to make us upset. It's gonna make, and we can, not in a prideful way, but we can understand that, yeah, but God the Father loves me. Right? God the Father looks at me, and because I'm in Jesus, I'm co-heirs with Jesus. And so he sees me like he sees his son. And I'm in his family because of it. And that perspective changes the way we walk through life. It changes the way that we have hope in difficult circumstances. When we know that God is on our side, he loves us, and he's proud of us. Just like the approval of an earthly father means the world to us. And people chase that, right? If they don't receive it as from their actual earthly parents, right? They chase it in other relationships. Why? Because they want, we need that approval, especially from older people. I've said before, and it's something that I've seen be true over and over and over again. Young people gravitate to the oldest person in the room who takes them seriously. And sometimes people say to me, like, you know, I would ask people to be on youth staff when I was a youth pastor and stuff like that. And even having conversations with just anybody. And they're like, I'm too old to be a youth. Like, I'm too old to hang out with teenagers or whatever. I'm like, nope. I know 70-year-olds that hang out with teenagers on a regular basis. And they are that youth group's favorite person on the planet. Because they trust them and they love them. The same is true, right? When we get that approval, we get it. When we are found in Jesus, we get that from God. I want to drill that home into our brains, right? That he loves us and he's proud of us. He knows we mess up, but when we're in Jesus, what he sees is Jesus. And he cares for us deeply. And so here's the third thing. I think is a reason to be baptized, to tell anyone 
who will listen that we belong to the Father. You know, I, we get this when there's family dynamics, right? You ever have a friend when you were growing up that just kind of got grafted into your family? Right? Or you were grafted into somebody else's family. They weren't your literal parents, but like you knew you had refrigerator rights in their house. You could just come over for dinner whenever, right? I had friends like that. I was like, hey, Mike's coming over for dinner. And parents were like, great. Like, not even a question. I just told them it was happening. Like, fine. Same thing with Mike's parents, right? That's what, we're like, we're like trying to give other people their refrigerator rights, right? You want to know, you want to know what it's like to be part of my family? You want to know what it's like to be loved and cherished and a God that made you, that loves you emphatically and is crazy about you? Let me tell you about him. And when we're baptized, when we identify with Jesus and we make that proclamation for everyone to understand, right? Whether it's just the people that are around you at the time, like people later in life, like, why did you do that? Because I wanted people to know that I identify with Jesus. I follow Jesus and my heavenly father loves me and I belong to him. And I want to tell you about him too. Because on my most difficult day, just like a difficult day in school, when I would come home and my dad would say, I'm proud of you. On my most difficult day, I I can go to my heavenly father and I know that he loves me and he's proud of me. And when that's where you end each day, there's hope at the end of every day because you know the father. And so here's here's my challenge as we we wrap this up today. Here's my challenge. Number one, if, if you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, that's the next step in your faith journey. That's the next step for you to take, okay? And whether you're here in the room or you're watching online, wherever you're at, like, if that's something that you haven't done, I would encourage you to do it. We, we're planning a baptism service for May, so you've got some time to figure that out and plan for it, whatever. I'll let you know what the actual time and date is, uh, but we want you to do it. We want to celebrate that with you. We want you to declare that fact that you follow Jesus. So if you're interested in that, if you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't done it and you just want more information on it, you can always take your Next Steps card, whether it's the one in the seat in front of you or it's on our website, and you just go to the back. And the third one down in this bubble says, I want to take my next step, and baptism is the first one. Just fill that out. Let us know. We would love to do that with you and for you, and celebrate that with you. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, and you haven't been baptized, that's my challenge for you, is that you would decide to be baptized, and follow Jesus in that way. Here's the other challenge for those of us who have already taken that step, right? Do you live in that space of understanding how God feels about you? Like, is that a a reminder on your brain regularly, that God loves you, and is proud of you? Now, we've talked about two things today that kind of feel dueling, right? God loves me and is proud of me, but I have to repent of my sin, right? But we have to do our part too. You know, just because our parents loved us growing up didn't mean that we, we didn't do wrong things, right? That we didn't have to work on what we were doing and how we were behaving and whether we were maybe even reflecting on their parenting, right? That we identified with them. But we, because we identify with the Father, say, I want to honor the Father with the way I live. And so that means that I repent of the sin that I've allowed to creep into my life. So in our repentance, the great thing is, we don't have to come and repent and be afraid. Maybe you felt that as a kid, right? I don't want to tell my parents, they're going to be mad at me. Like, God already knows, first of all, right? And second of all, if you're in, like, if you've received Jesus, 
the forgiveness is already there. We're just coming and saying, I apologize for what I did. And God says, I've already forgiven you, right? Turn from that and live the way I've called you to live because it's the way that you're supposed to live and it's the best way for you to live. And so in our repentance, we come and we're not afraid. But we recognize that we are called to be holy and set apart. So God loves us and he'll forgive us. But we have to repent of those wrong things and evaluate each day. So evaluate. Take some time this week. Take some time as I pray in a minute. What have you allowed to creep in? What's, what's sticking that you need to just get rid of? If you were having a conversation with John the Baptist and you said, what should I do? What would he say? Get rid of this. Stop doing that. Stop saying this. Whatever it might be. Remember, when you come for that repentance, God sees you, he loves you, and he cherishes you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for uh, just the story of John the Baptist, John the Baptist, whatever you want to say, and, and the role that he played in Jesus' ministry. Thank you for his willingness to clear the road so that everyone, including us, could understand the salvation that's offered through Jesus. God, I pray that this reality of the love that you have for us, the way that you see us if we're in Jesus is just as an adoring father sees his children, that you love us unconditionally. And yet through that love and because of that love, we should be motivated to recognize when we have strayed from you and that we would repent and receive the forgiveness you've already offered. God, I pray that you would convict us of the things that we need to be convicted of and that we would repent and turn away from the sins that are in our lives and we would turn towards you and chase you as closely as we can. And God, I ask for anybody that would identify as a follower of you but has never been baptized, that they would make that decision today and that we would be able to celebrate with that, that with them in just a few short months. We thank you again for the way that you love us and cherish us. In Jesus' name, amen.